Do you remember back when Noriega dreamed he was the emperor of the south? The American night attack sought to end this gangster's reign of terror in Panama. Our study leader Dave Wurtzen contrasts this night attack with another night arrest that executed the worst travesty of justice this world has ever known. Let's open our New Testaments to Mark chapter 14 and 15 as Dave exposes the arrest and trial of Jesus Christ. Noriega was priding himself as the Emperor of the South. He had unbelievable luxuries, worshipping his demons. Here's a person that had brutally murdered people all through his career. One of my close friends was sharing with me years ago that there was this madman down in Panama that he hoped would never come to power because he knew when he was a major that he'd taken someone out and just brutally butchered him. And he was bloodthirsty and a murderer and involved in the drug cartel. And when he rose to power in Panama, it just would make you shudder. And so you think of him being in a Miami court and that a person is innocent until proven guilty. Now that includes even Nadiega, right? But our court is set up that a person, when they're arraigned before a judge, is innocent until they're proven guilty by a jury. Now I want you to think about that. I want you to think of a tremendous contrast. Here we have a madman who has been a murderer, has abused not only people that have taken drugs in our own country, but has just sucked the lifeblood out of his own country. And yet we arrest him and arraign him, and we're going to have a fair trial. Jesus Christ was the king of kings. Not the emperor of the south, just proclaiming himself that, Jesus was, objectively, the emperor of all the universe. Instead of living in luxury, instead of getting money and living in gigantic luxury, this Lord Jesus left ultimate luxury in heaven, and he became poor. He didn't even come to earth in kind of a halfway and become the emperor of the earth in Rome. He came and was born in just a normal family, in fact, a very poor family, lived on the other side of the tracks, and he lived among men as a poor man. In fact, one of the real conflicts is that the power people of his day were jealous of the tremendous hold that he had over people. There's going to be a night attack, but it's not going to be the army rangers jumping out of helicopters and out of their transports in order to set up people free. It's not going to be a night attack where the mass population will be having celebrations on the street. We're going to see a gang come from the rulers of the first century. They come out and they arrest an innocent man. And unlike the fair trial, this man, I want you to examine the kind of a trial that he faced. Let's turn our Bibles to Mark chapter 14 and try to go back almost 2,000 years into the moments right after the Battle of Mount Olivet. We pick up the story just as Jesus says, Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. Verse 43. Just as he was speaking, just after he said those words to the disciples, Judas, one of the twelve, appeared. With him was a crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders. 
And what Mark is telling us is that this gang that's come to arrest the Lord Jesus is the representative of the Jewish authorities. In fact, Luke's gospel tells us that some of the priests themselves accompanied this gang. So what we have is the temple police, some of the high priests. John's gospel tells us that they come with clubs and with swords and with lanterns. Jesus is up on the Mount of Olives, and you could see this gang with their lanterns coming down out of the gate of Jerusalem, down into the Valley of Kidron, and then up towards Gethsemane. Jesus could see this gang coming. That's why he would say, Arise, the hour has come. The gang arrives, and that's the scene that John's presenting to us. Verse 44, Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one that I kiss is the man. Arrest him and lead him away under arrest. Now you might say, well, Jesus taught every day in the temple. Why would Judas have to arrange some kind of a signal? Well, all of us know that with a night attack, it can be very difficult to apprehend the man that you're after. The CIA tells us that they knew exactly where Nadiega was for weeks before we had our night attack. And yet when we did attack, it took several days to find him. No one knew where he was. And you had thousands of troops looking for him. Judas realizes that when they go out to the Mount of Olives at night, when there's the disciples around, possibly some other disciples of Jesus, along with the original 12, or the 11, because Judas had since left the group, that there could be confusion in the night. And in order to guard against all that confusion, Judas says that the signal will be an everyday greeting. Dell Austin was sharing with me how he read Daily Bread about the greeting with a holy kiss. Well, in the American culture, that's a very difficult custom for us to understand. If you were Europeans, you wouldn't have any trouble understanding because this first century custom in Europe has just carried right up Till the present day, they give one another a kiss on either side of the cheek. That's the kind of a greeting. Instead of a handshake, the normal greeting, when you met somebody and they were a friend, if they were close to you, you would greet them with a kiss. And Judas says, the man that I kiss is your man. Arrest him. Now John's gospel fills in a little bit more of the details. If you turn over to John, and you don't need to turn there now, but I'll just sketch in some more of the details so that we'll try to put Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all together for us. You might get the impression as you're reading this account that things are out of control for Christ. Often in the secular world, Jesus Christ is presented as being the victim of circumstances, as having forces beyond his control grab a hold of him. And he is the innocent martyr who cannot do anything to stop this onslaught of evil. John's gospel communicates some very important realities about this scene. When this gang with clubs and swords and their lanterns come, John tells us that Jesus addresses them. And he had asked them who they're seeking. And Jesus says the simple words, I am which is very powerful because in the Old Testament, remember when Moses met the Lord and then Moses asked him what his name was and God said, I am that I am. In John's Gospel, one of the most prominent ideas 
is that Jesus of Nazareth that was born in Bethlehem is not only the human Jesus, but he is God come in the flesh. He is the God-man. And John's gospel has a top priority to declare that Jesus is God. And John tells us that when Jesus says, I am, the crowd falls back. The power of that name just overwhelms them. Judas steps forth, and at that time, we go through the dialogue where Judas comes, and it says in verse 45, going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And Jesus and one of the other synoptics says, do you betray your master with a kiss? Bringing out the heartache of this whole scene in the beginning of the agony of Gethsemane and the agony of the crucifixion is this betrayal by a friend. In order to enter into this scene, you need to start to begin to think of all the losses, of all the grief, of all the hurts. Because the scenes that we're going to be talking about the next couple weeks are the worst, grievous tragedies that have ever taken place. All the kind of tragedies, like in Selma, Alabama, when the mounted police charged with their horses into unarmed crowd of blacks that were marching on Selma in protesting, a nonviolent, nonviolent protest. And the police went in, and on national television, because the ABC cameras were there, you started to see skulls cracked open with billy clubs. And the nation was galvanized. The conscience of the nation broke. And a week later, the civil rights legislation was passed. That's the kind of a scene that's taking place here. Only in this scene, the victim is absolutely spotless. No other victim that's ever lived, that's ever experienced injustice, is absolutely stainless, absolutely sinless, absolutely deserves no evil done to them. But this Son of God, who we begin to see him betrayed by his close friend, is absolutely spotless. No evil found in him. And his friend betrays him with a kiss. Then one of those standing there when they arrested Jesus, we learn from the Gospel of John that it was Peter. Probably Mark didn't mention Peter's name, uh, though he knew it well, was because Mark was written earlier, and it was possible that still at this time when Mark's Gospel was written, that uh, they didn't want to let out who the one is that cut off Malchus's ear. John, writing many years later near the very end of the first century, tells us that Peter was the one who drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest, who John tells us his name was Malchus, and he cut off his ear. You know, I think this is one of the things that led, we need to, as we think about Peter doing this, it's so consistent with his personality, impetuous, uh, the strong leader. Remember, he had just told the Lord Jesus that even though everybody denies you, even though everybody leaves you, I will never leave you. And Jesus told them that you need to pray, Peter, lest you fall into temptation. And then last week we saw Peter fall asleep, and now he's awake. But because he hasn't prayed, he has no sensitivity to what's happening. And I can almost feel Peter in his mind saying, this is it. This is my moment. This is my moment when I need to stand strong in temptation. 
So he rips at his sword. My dad always says that he doesn't really believe that Peter meant to cut off his ear. He thought he meant to cut off his head, only missed and cut off his ear. Uh, my dad doubted Peter's swords, uh, his ability with his sword as a swordsman. Uh, I don't know. But at any rate, Peter thought he was doing the right thing. The Lord Jesus rebukes Peter. And it's the same kind of rebuke that Peter received when Peter said, you're not going to go to the cross. At the time, right after Peter's confession, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, in the very next breath, he says, you don't need to go to the cross. And Jesus says, get you behind me, Satan. The same thing happened here when Peter cut off Malchus's ear. Jesus said, put up your sword. Put up your sword. The Son of God, do you mean for the Son of God not to take what the Father has designed for him from the beginning of the world. In Luke's gospel, it tells us the Lord Jesus took the ear and just touched it and immediately healed it, once again giving us insight into the power of the man that you're dealing with. You know, it's one thing when you're weak. I don't know if you have ever been in a position where you're, you're being grabbed by a mob and you can't resist I remember as a, when I was uh, like 16, being a program director at the ranch, we used to have bandits that would play act. We'd have it be like a Wild West show, and we'd have these bandits attack. And at that time at the ranch, we had 400 kids, and sometimes these 400 kids would attack the bandits. Like on Saturday when the bandits came in and we'd have a gunfight, and one of the bandits tried to run and get away, before we got control of some of the situations, these 400 kids would hit these 18-year-old fellows that were playing bandit. And I remember several times we'd arrive and you'd have about 100 kids all at once grabbing hold of a guy. And the guy would be just totally overwhelmed, totally helpless. And you'd have to go in there as the representative of the law and get these little kids off. Even if they were little kids, when you multiply their weight about 150 times, you're just totally helpless. And I had that feeling happen to me a few times when I was playing that kind of a game. It's one of the most horrible feelings in the world to be totally overwhelmed, that you can't do anything to resist. A lot of times when we think about the crucifixion, we think of Jesus being like that. The incredible thing to me is that Jesus could have resisted. Right in this account, right in this account, Jesus says, when he says to Peter to put up his sword, he says, don't you realize that at this moment, I could call legions of angels to come and deliver me from this moment. In order to understand the depth of the Lord's love for you, in order to understand the power of what is going on here, you must not think of Jesus as being a defenseless victim, overwhelmed. Instead, he was the king of kings that willingly lets go of all of his authority, of all of his rights, and willingly suffers for us. The Lord Jesus turns to the crowd in verse 48, and he says, Am I leading a rebellion that you've come out to me with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I was with you teaching in the temple courts, and you did not arrest me. But the scriptures must be fulfilled. And then everyone deserted him and fled. A young man, probably John Mark, the author of our book, wearing nothing but a linen garment, was following Jesus, and when they seized the Lord Jesus, he fled, 
naked leaving his garment behind. And it just underscores the scene of abandonment. There's a very interesting interaction of ideas. Jesus accuses his accusers. And we begin with this idea that right from the very start, the questions are raised. Why are they arresting Jesus at night? Why didn't they arrest him? For more than a week, he had been teaching every single day in the temple courts. And he had done it peaceably. And the priests had interacted with him. If they wanted to arrest him, why did they not arrest him there? Why are they doing it at night? Why did they come with clubs and spears as if they were going to arrest some drug thug? That's what Jesus is highlighting. There's a tremendous contrast. Jesus is asking them, why is everything so secret? Trials aren't supposed to be a secret. Arrests don't need to be done like this in the middle of the night. And it starts to underscore this tremendous conflict between a gang that almost becomes mob violence and the control of the Lord. And we, we wrestle with it an incredible mystery because Jesus said these things must be fulfilled that the Scripture might be fulfilled. So we have the plan of God that's being written to us in the Old Testament, being presented to us in the arrest, and the betrayal, in the trial, and in the crucifixion. And yet we also have accusations against those who are involved. In other words, we have the sovereign plan of God that's working everything out according to his set purpose. But the individuals that are giving in to their wickedness. In fact, one of the synoptics says that the hour of darkness has come. The powers of darkness have been given authority. And as this tremendous evil begins to take control of the situation, the people involved are responsible. And it's that balance that we must maintain very much in our own lives. There is the sovereign plan of God. God has determined things according to the Holy Scripture. And yet we're responsible for the choices that we make. And Jesus is saying that this is happening, that my Father is allowing this to happen, I'm allowing it to happen, that the Scriptures might be fulfilled. But this crowd is responsible. Why are you coming at night? Why are you coming to arrest me as a thief? They take the Lord and we move from the arrest. I mentioned the armed crowd coming out as if they're going to arrest a rebel. I talked to you about the religious leader's involvement. We've talked about Judas, the betrayer. We're going to move into Peter, the betrayer as well. And also this idea of coming to arrest Judas at night. They almost come to him like he's an insurrectionist, like he's some kind of a rebel of which there were many in the first century. And Jesus is, is, the way that Jesus acts, the way that he behaves, completely eliminates those charges. He doesn't act like a brigand. He doesn't act like he's leading an insurrection. And so you can see this tremendous conflict that begins to build. In the middle of the night, verse 55, they take the Lord Jesus to the high priest. That would be Annas, the father of Caiaphas, who was not the legally recognized high priest, but he was the one, the power behind the throne, you might say. In the middle of the night, they take the Lord Jesus to Annas' home, and the chief priests have gathered with elders and teachers of the law, and they come together. Notice Peter follows from a distance, and he goes right into the court of the high priest. John tells us how he was able to do that. Evidently, John had some friends in the, in the home of the high priest, 
And John was able to come back and bring Peter in from the door. So Peter followed the Lord at a distance and then comes right into the courtyard. And there he sat with the guards and warmed himself at the fire. It's a very vivid picture. What you want to picture is in this area is like a home that's set up in a U. Kind of like a U with, with the walls and with a big courtyard in the middle. So the rooms are on the outside with an open courtyard there in the center of this complex. There's a fire that's been kindled right in the center of the courtyard, probably because it's winter and it's cold. And the temple arresting police that have just arrested the Lord Jesus are there warming their hands around the fire. And Peter, incognito, he thinks, tries to get there so he can be close to hear what's going to happen in one of these rooms around the periphery where they have Jesus and they're going to be arresting him. And John sets that scene early. We have Peter warming himself by the fire because he wants to find out what's going to happen with the trial. And that awakens with us what is going to happen in this trial. In verse 55, the chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so they could put him to death. Now, what kind of a trial is that? The judges in this case, and those who are going to hear the case, what have they concluded about Jesus from the beginning? Jesus, according to the law courts that he faced, was... Now, how do you get a fair trial that way? I want you to start to see the travesty of justice. This is incredible. The chief priests are looking to find a charge. Now look at verse 56. They bring in one witness after another. Many testified falsely against him. Now that wasn't so bad for these high priests. They weren't that uptight about the false charges. Notice what they are uptight about. But their statements did not agree. That usually happens when you're lying. They bring in one witness after another. They all give false statements. But everything is contradicting. So they know that they don't have anything to bring before Pilate. So then the high priest himself. Some stood up and gave false testimony against him. And they said this. He said, I heard him say, we, I will destroy this man-made temple. And in three days we'll build another, not made by man. Now what's wrong with that statement? They said, Jesus said, I will destroy this man-made temple. And in three days I will build another, not made by man. What's wrong with that statement? Did Jesus say that he would destroy the temple and in three days rebuild it? Jesus did say he was going to destroy a temple. But it wasn't the temple in Jerusalem. It was the temple as we learned. Remember when we talked about the true dwelling place of God? We talked about the temple in the Old Testament. And then it became the temple of the body of the Lord Jesus. And then we become a temple today in which God dwells. That's a development in the Gospel of John. In John chapter 2, Jesus did say he would destroy the temple of his body. And then in three days, he would be resurrected was the prediction. Now, they took what he said and said that Jesus predicted he was going to destroy the temple of Jerusalem. It would be like, let me give you a little bit of feel of it. It would be like an Islamic person that in the city of Jerusalem was arrested with a bomb in their suitcase walking into the dome of the rock. That's not going to go over. 
Someone that's going to destroy the Dome of the Rock in Jerusalem, one of the major Muslim shrines, could initiate a war. And you'll understand what the high priests are trying to do here because that kind of a charge would hold credibility before Pilate. Because they could say Jesus is an insurrectionist. He's threatened in modern terminology to blow up the temple. But what had they done? They had totally twisted what Jesus had said. That's why the, why the false testimonies wouldn't agree. They had twisted what Jesus said. Jesus never said he was going to destroy that earthly temple. Although he did predict because of what was about to take place that there would be the judgment against Judah and against the temple. But it had all been twisted. And they're trying to paint the Lord Jesus like he is an insurrectionist. And yet, even this testimony does not hold. So in the next verse, verse 60, the high priest takes matters right into his own hands and he asks Jesus directly, Are you not going to answer this charge? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Messiah? Are you the Christ? The word Christ means the Messiah. Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? And Jesus answered, I am. And you will see the Son of Man, according to the book of Daniel, the word Jesus is quoting from, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Now what is Jesus claiming? If anybody ever says to you, Jesus was a rabbi in the first century, it's very important for us to think very clearly. How many of you have ever heard of the reality that Jesus was arrested? Okay? Almost all of you have heard that. But very few Americans go verse by verse through the account of the rest and figure out and figure out what was really going on. You know, I have yet, I have yet to see a movie presentation of the crucifixion of Christ that gets it right, that gets the details right. Jonathan said to me about the, about the birth of Christ. He says, you know what I'm really hungry for, Dad, is I'd like to see, just for once, just a normal, biblical, accurate account of the birth of Christ. And it struck me. That's true. You know, we, we, we make all kinds of ditties around the birth of Christ. But we get it all messed up. All the details are wrong. The wise men come the same time as the shepherds. Everything, all the little details that the Gospels brings out get lost. In the arrest of Jesus, it's very important to understand exactly what is going on. The high priest asked Jesus, are you the Messiah? And what does Jesus answer? Tell me. The high priest said, are you the Son of God? What did Jesus answer? I am. I want to ask you something very important. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Because some of the kids are going to go away to university. You're going to be in a religious class and it's going to be taught to you that Jesus was a rabbi in the first century. He was a misunderstood rabbi. And today, 2,000 years later, we all need to listen to what Jesus said. We need to listen to what Muhammad said. 
We need to listen to what Buddha said because they all had a lot of very good things to say. And it's all basically the same thing. It's all about following the good and being ethical and living loving lives and non-aggressive resistance. What Jesus taught and what Gandhi taught are basically the same thing. I want to share with you that is not historically accurate at all. I want to share something with you. If Jesus Christ was just a rabbi of the first century, then Jesus deserved to be crucified. Because according to Old Testament law, to claim to be a prophet, to claim to be a representative of God, to claim to be the Son of God was blasphemy And in the Old Testament, blasphemy was a crime worthy of death. And it's hard for us to feel that because in our society, the name of God can be blasphemed very easily and no one, who cares? But the Jewish people in the first century cared about the name of God. They cared about false claims. And according to the Old Testament, the high priests were responsible for evaluating messianic claims. And if Jesus lied, then he deserved the death penalty. He deserved to die. That's an incredible choice. It's the biggest choice. It's the widest gap there is. Either we have Jesus of Nazareth, a rebel, a liar, a person who claimed to be God come in the flesh, the promised one from God, and he is a liar, he's an imposter, And he deserves death? Or we're on this side saying he told the truth. He was the Messiah. He was the Savior of the world. He was the Son of God. He was the Emperor of the earth. And we bow before him and we worship him. Those are the choices that are being presented. There's a lot of debate even in scholarly circles. Did Jesus claim to be the Messiah? I believe that no matter how much you cut away at the strata, the supposed strata of the New Testament, woven into the fabric of the Gospel of Mark, the Gospel of Matthew, the Gospel of Luke, and the Gospel of John, it is crystal clear what this trial is about. Are you the Messiah? Are you the Son of God? Now, Jesus would not accept that he was a Messiah according to their categories, as a great deliverer from the Romans. Jesus would not accept that concept of the Messiah. But the concept that he was the promised one of the Old Testament, that he was God's Son come in the flesh, his answer was, I am. And that's why the high priest at this moment, if you look at it, the high priest tears his garment in verse 63, which is the way they would express absolute consternation and horror. It says the high priest tore his clothes and says, why do we need any more witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. The blasphemy was the claim to be the Messiah, the Son of God. They all condemned him as worthy of death. Then some began to spit at him. They blindfolded him and struck him with their fists and said, prophesy. And the other gospels will add, who is it that struck you? If you're a prophet, if you're the Messiah, if you're the Son of God, tell us blindfolded who hit you. 
And the guards took him and beat him. What's going on here? If Jesus really is the Messiah, according to their categories, he is the mighty one. He is the powerful one. And if he really is the Messiah who he claims to be, then he's the one that can use his power. He could just conquer all these that are coming against him. And what this mob begins to relish is the fact of his weakness. And we totally have him under our control. And the very abuse that we're giving him is proving that he's not the Messiah. That he isn't the Son of God. You ever think of the tremendous control that it took? Have you ever had anybody just spit at you right in the face? Purposely, not by mistake, but because they wanted to. They wanted to. A friend of mine, Bob Vernon, and I told you the story one day of he and his boy coming out of a football stadium, and a large crowd was drunk. And Bob was not in his uniform, and he would just come to the game with his son, but one of the L.A. police was trying to control the crowd that was drunk and try to get them under control, and one of the drunks spit right in the face of this L.A. policeman. And then the crowd came unglued and they started coming against this single... He was armed, you know, but he was helpless with the crowd. And Bob told the story about how his young college son, big strapping guy, just dashed into that crowd to stand and try to defend this policeman. And Bob told us when he was telling the story, he says, I didn't want to go into that crowd for anything. I was so scared. I thought they were going to kill us. And yet when my son took off, I didn't have any choice. And they were able to get in. They were able to quiet the crowd and get things under control. But Bob asked his son later, he said, Son, why in the world did you do something so stupid? You could have got us all killed. And Bob's son said, I could take what they were yelling at the guys. We walked up that stadium. But from the time I'd been a little tiny kid, You've worn that uniform. And I've prayed for you to be protected. And when I saw one of your officers with that uniform on, when that spit went on the uniform, I just could not control myself. And I didn't care whether they killed me or not. It was going to be dealt with. Jesus had the kind of power that all he had to do was just stop what he was, whatever he was doing. All he had to do was stop his omnipotence, you might say, his omnipotent control over the universe. In Colossians it says that in him all things hold together. All he had to do was stop holding things together for a split second. And not only that crowd would have been destroyed, not only the soldiers abusing him, but the whole universe would have dissolved. But he didn't. He let him spit at him. He let him punch him out. Not because he wasn't powerful enough to restrain them, but because it was time for him to give his life willingly as a sacrifice for our sins. And Jesus goes through his first abuse, being beaten, being spit upon, being mocked. That finishes out the night. In order to give the thing a semblance of legitimacy, they bring the Lord. It's probably as Jesus is coming through the courtyard that the Lord Jesus looks upon Peter. And the gospel tells us that he looks upon him and Peter is pierced to his heart as he looks at the Son of God because Peter has just 
denied the Lord, as you've studied so many times. Began with a little girl, probably the doorkeeper, when he first came in. You're one of those. No, I'm not. No, I'm not one of those. Why do you say that? Later on, around the fire in the middle of the courtyard, the girl comes up again. You've got to... You're one of them. I can tell. Let me look at you more closely. No, I'm not. I don't know the man. Boy, he gets more vehement. Then he goes out to the door, by the door area again, and there's a group of people in this kind of a vestibule area. And one of the guys that was a friend of Malchus, who had his ear cut off and healed by the Lord, says, man, I know you're one of them. You're a Galilean. You smell like a Galilean. You talk like a Galilean. And Peter says, I swear by the living God. In essence, he says, God can strike me dead. I don't even know the man. And right at that time, it's probably when they're making the transfer. Because it's almost a very personal account as it describes the Lord Jesus looking upon Peter. And the cock crows and Peter realizes that what Jesus had prophesied about him is true. And the abuse betrayed by Judas betrayed by his most intimate disciple other than John. And Jesus walks out into the early morning as the sun just begins to come up and the Sanhedrin gathers. It only takes him a few minutes to get the accusations together. The accusation is he is a blasphemer. He is claiming to be the Christ. In a Roman court of law, they've got the perfect argument. He is claiming to be a counter-king, a counter-emperor to the emperor Caesar. And so the rabble-rousers with the high priests take Jesus to Pilate, who alone will have the jurisdiction to try the Lord Jesus and execute him. In verse, chapter 15, verse 1, very early in the morning, the chief priest with the elders, the teacher of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin reached a decision. This is probably the early morning trying to give legitimacy to the night hearing. They bound Jesus and led him away and handed him over to Pilate. Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And so you can tell very clearly what the charge was in the Roman court of law. He is a Jew that's claiming to be a counter-emperor to Caesar. Jesus replied, yes, it is as you say. John's gospel fills in a lot of details about this encounter with Pilate. And Jesus does answer, yes, I am the king of the Jews. But Jesus goes on to explain, but my kingdom is not the kind of a kingdom that you're thinking of. And Jesus said, in fact, if my kingdom was the kind of a kingdom that you're thinking of, then my people would have fought for me. They would have defended me. But my kingdom is not of this world. The pagan Pilate vaguely understands, vaguely comprehends the differences of the kingdom. That Jesus is really not a political insurrectionist. That he's really not calling for the downthrow of the Roman government. He is a king in a much different sense of the word. He is a king that moves people and guides people and has authority over people, not by position, but by influence and by example and by moving in people's inner lives which is the whole point of why we're together here. We're living in a time where this internal phase of the kingdom of God is the way that God is working on the earth. And the influence of the Lord Jesus is not an influence that's going to grab a hold of you and force you to do anything. 
This king that we're studying today, unlike Caesar, is not going to grab your life and make you pay taxes. That's why in our church family, we don't stress that a whole lot. The king that we worship today won't force you to pay a tax. He won't check up on you and say, hey, you're not paying your taxes. The IRS will. And yet this king, if he gets a hold of your hearts, you'll empty your pockets for him. More, much more than your pockets, you'll empty your life for him. Because he has such a hold on your life. But it's a tremendous difference in the kingdom. This king is one that rules internally from deep within our hearts. And Pilate senses that. But he was a king. The chief priests accused him of many other things. So Pilate asked him, Aren't you going to answer? See how many things they're accusing you of. But Jesus still made no reply, and Pilate was amazed. Now it was the custom at the feast to release a prisoner whom the people requested, a man called Barabbas. It's very interesting. There's a textual uh, alternative in the Gospels that say that his name was Jesus Barabbas. And there's pretty good testimony. So probably the name of this insurrectionist was Jesus Barabbas. Barabbas just means the son of the father. And it's, it's, it might have even been kind of a, a pseudo name to cover up an identity because evidently this Barabbas was a very well-known political rabble-rouser, probably one of the leaders of the zealot-type party that was trying to rebel against Rome. So a man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists. Evidently the other two that were with him were part of his uh, gang. And they had committed murder in an uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do th for them what they usually did. Pilate sees a way out. He's going to give the crowd the choice, Jesus or Barabbas. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Because Pilate knew that it was because of envy that the chief priests had handed Jesus over to him. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to help Pilate to release Barabbas instead. What shall I do with the king of the Jews, Pilate asked. Crucify him, they shouted. Why, Pilate responds, what crime has he committed? But they shouted all the louder, crucify him, crucifying him. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them, and he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. For centuries, the question has been asked, who crucified Jesus Christ? Gentiles, down through the centuries, have said the Jews killed Jesus Christ. And this account makes it very clear. The Jewish leaders of the first century took the lead in crucifying Jesus. But what was it? Was it because the Jews were racially Jews that they crucified Jesus? Did it say that the reason that Jesus was crucified is because the Jewish people as a race are the bad people? That's why they crucified Jesus. Is that what it says? What did it say, crucified Jesus Christ? Pilate knew that it was because of, say it real loud, Okay, how many of you have ever been jealous of the talent of somebody else? Anybody this week wrestled with envy? So guess which crowd we're in. Guess which crowd we're in. 
The Gentiles have blamed it on the Jews. The Jews, you know, one of the prime arguments among rabbinic studies is it's the Romans that did it. You know, the Romans are a good group to claim. You know why? There's not many Romans, especially ancient Romans, around today. It's not really a, a race, you might say. So that's a great way to deal with it. We can all blame it on the Romans, right? We can blame, let's blame it on one Roman. It was Pilate's fault. The reason Jesus was crucified is because of Pilate. Why do you think Pilate crucified Jesus Christ? According to what I just read to you, why did Pilate crucify Christ? To satisfy the crowd. I want to ask you, how many of you in your life have ever been with a group and the group wanted to do something that you knew was wrong? And the group said, ah, come on, come on. Everyone's doing it. We're all here. We're all going to do it. How many of you have ever given in to that? Don't be too hard on Pilate. You know the incredible reality, the incredible reality of this story. You know what crucified Jesus Christ? Things like hurt. How many of you have ever had a friend that was close to you rebuke you? A friend loved you enough to tell you the truth and they told you you were wrong. And in your heart you said, I'm going to get that guy. I'm going to get that girl. How do, what right do they have to tell me that I was wrong? You want to know why Jesus was betrayed by Judas? That's one of the reasons. Jesus told Judas, when Judas was all uptight with Mary about spilling the ointment, Jesus said, Judas, why are you all uptight? She did a beautiful thing for me. And Judas rebuked him. Judas just couldn't handle that. That's one of the reasons why. Also because he was a thief. Anybody here ever stolen anything? When you start stealing, when you start lying, when you start saying, I'm going to take control, one of the problems that Judas had is he couldn't understand what his Messiah was doing. He couldn't understand all this talk about going to the cross, about suffering. How many of us have ever said, I don't think I'm going to follow Christ anymore. I don't like what he's doing. I'm going to take control. You see, we read this story, we read this story and we go, those high priests. How many think the high priests were bad? I think they were bad. How many think the elders were bad? How many think the, the crowd was bad? How many think this rabble rather are bad? How many think Pilate's bad? And you all read this story and I read this story and go, oh, those terrible people. People are, those people were bad. Boy, it's easy to say that Pilate was bad. Boy, it's easy to say the high priests were bad. You know what's tough? You know what's really tough? And you'll never be delivered. We'll just be playing religious games here as long as we do that. And it's the biggest con job that you and I do in our life. We all say, Pilate's bad, the high priests are bad, the crowd is bad. You know what we have trouble saying with? I'm bad. I'm bad. Now who deserved to be on the cross, the center cross? Why didn't Barabbas die that day? Because Jesus took his place. Now, I don't know what happened in the life of Barabbas after that. But I asked the question, I don't know about Barabbas, but what about you? From the smallest child of the oldest adult, what have you done about the fact that Jesus took your place? 
Have you come to that moment in your life? It can take place anytime, any place, but it's important that it takes place. Have you come to that place where you realize this is how bad I am? I'm full of murder, I'm full of envy. When I face the truth of what's inside myself, I, I go along with the crowd, even if it's wrong. I'm pressured. I try to cover my own backside. I'm trying to preserve my own skin. Even if it means abusing an innocent person, it's part of me. I am a sinner. And you realize that the King of Kings willingly took the just penalty that we deserved and took our place. Because the moment of salvation is the moment when you say, Lord Jesus, thank you. I deserved to hang there. And you hung there for me. That's the moment of salvation. That's what salvation is about. It's not just believing a culture. It's not just being raised in the right kind of a church. It is that commitment to a person. Jesus took your place.